I like to think about the workplace as an ecosystem. So it's not just the physical, just the virtual, just the emotional, just the experience. It's, it's all of those things. And so my view and my recommendations to our clients really think about all of those facets of the workplace. And I think it's easy in the moment to make a knee-jerk reaction around, you know, oh, we need to space out all the desks or we need to, you know, close down all the community spaces or we're going to, we're going to automatically, we've seen now that, you know, a good chunk of our workforce can work remotely. So we're not ever going to bring them back. And I think the conversations that have been evolving and that I've been having both on other panels and, and now here on this, on your podcast and with our clients is it really needs to be a much more measured approach. I do believe that there is opportunity for us to better embrace a digital workplace and to ha enable choice and flexibility and so that people can get the work done that they need to get the work done in the places that they feel like they're most productive. I also think that we're a social species and to assume that we could do it all remotely is, um, in my opinion, probably not the best recipe for um, driving innovation and driving really incredible um, ideas and, ge and generating those into some realized product. Hi, I'm Paul Miller and this is Digital Workplace Impact where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices and people that are impacting the new digital worlds where we all work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking and boutique consulting services. And if you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So this was a an unexpected and really delightful conversation with Sam Fisher, Director of Workplace Strategy at Transwestern, large real estate company in North America. Not unexpected because I hadn't expected the conversation with Sam to be delightful, just because of what we actually talked about. It's a lot less about the digital workplace within Transwestern and a lot more about what do we do with all of this real estate offices, physical infrastructure when organizations are allowed to have people come back to their offices? I've been kind of wondering if you've got some hundreds of people or even thousands of people coming to a large office building in Paris or Berlin or London or New York, are organizations going to let people come back there? And if they are, on what basis? And if you can't let them come back there, certainly not in the volume that we have in the past, kind of what's the business justification? And then what do you do with the reduced space that those organizations don't need? What's the opportunity that this huge experiment in new ways of working is kind of teaching us in COVID-19? And Sam is right at the center of these conversations and trying to help organizations work through that. So I, I hope you enjoy that as much as as I did. And on a sort of related front, I just wanted to mention a new movement that DWG has launched, and it's called the DWG Work Miles Movement. Join the movement that's going nowhere, 
which is our clever how smart are we way of putting it. And essentially what it says is we're all enjoying the fact that our climate, our environment, our natural world is so much happier when we treat it better, when we don't pollute it the way we have. And a large component of that pollution is work travel, including commuting. So it's really a movement to encourage organisations and individuals to sign up to a reduction for 2020 and in coming years in the amount of work miles, including commuting, that you do every year. In DWG, we have set a work miles budget for 2020 that is 50% below what we expended on miles in 2019. And of course, we've all got a sort of advantage going in it. We've got like a credit note because we've had this enforced period of not traveling for work. But essentially what it says is set a work miles budget or a work kilometers budget, just as you do a financial budget. Set it at the organization level, then at the unit level, then at the team level, then in the individual level. And then you spend what budget you've been given and make sure that 2020 is a percentage below 2019. It doesn't have to be 50%, could be 5%. Because if you're a large organization with hundreds of thousands of people, 5% makes a massive difference. And if you do that year on year, we might still be able to enjoy the repairing of our planet that we're experiencing in a few weeks, thanks to the reduction in travel. Now for Sam Fisher. I'm delighted to be joined today by Sam Fisher. Sam is the Director of Workplace Strategy at Transwestern, which is a a real estate company, and we'll hear a little bit more about her role in a minute. Um, She's had uh, various roles. She was Global Head of Facilities and Services at Citadel and was the Senior Director for Workplace Experience at Capital One. Um, Sam and I um, kind of came into contact with each other after she kindly referenced a blog post I did a few months ago called 20 Little Lessons for Remote Working, based on almost 20 years of experience in that area. And and, and great to have you here, Sam. And just tell me, what, what was it about the, because um, there's been an awful lot of stuff about remote working. Um, even when I posted it, it was a lot of stuff and there's been even more now. What was it about that that sort of caught your attention? Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast with you and the team and kind of have this discussion today. It's so incredibly relevant, even probably more so relevant than when we initially connected. And so really the parts around the lessons that I really felt was relevant at at the time and is even still relevant now is really just the the spectrum of which you discussed all the different lessons and it touched across teams, it touched across managers, it touched across, you know, your own personal accountability. One of my favorite ones is uh, number eight, which is start and end all meetings on time. Punctuality is important. And that is very, very important when you're remote working and you don't have uh, physical cues to see either someone is knocking on the door or people are getting restless in the meeting. You don't have physical cues to kind of see that the meeting should be wrapping up and, and and it's easy to get off task and 
go over in remote working in those spaces. So I really felt like it just was a nice sort of amalgamation of, of different parts and pieces. It wasn't focused on any one specific thing. And it really, I thought, tied it all together well and allowed people to look at it and absorb it and consume it from their perspective of where they were along their remote working journey. Okay, that's 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 great. And and why is it you like stuff about? Because I mean, in a way, arriving and ending meetings punctually when you're remote working, it's kind of like, well, isn't that what you should do in all meetings? But somehow, I kind of felt like it was an important thing to remind people about. Because there's that sense, isn't there, when you're kind of not working in in your sort of let's say regular working environment, that you you kind of just kind of get a little bit kind of fluid and a little bit too flexible. And it, it, is, is that what was kind of capturing you about that? It is. I think, I think it's, you get, I think there's a lot of things going on to that one. You're super comfortable if you're working remotely generally, right? Um, we laugh about it in this right now because the running joke now in every meeting is, you know, I've washed my pajamas five times. Right. So that's what you're coming to meetings in. Um, So I think, I think there's a level of comfort that comes with that. And so with comfort and it it becomes a little bit easier to be fluid. I also think, um, and, and I'll speak for myself personally, the, the lack of sort of interactive social connection that's going on right now. Um, and, and candidly with COVID, it's much more forced and it's much more um, required, right? I mean, if you do, if you have some level of flexibility in your workplace that you're able to take advantage of when you, during non-COVID times, that's great. But I think now people are feeling the squeeze, particularly in you know the States where, this is not a normal work environment for a lot of companies uh, in the United States. Uh, it's much more prevalent in European uh, organizations, but it's not as prevalent in, in the United States. And so I think people are feeling the lack of connection. And so when you're on particularly a video conference, there's this connection you feel. And so, you know, the, the, the general conversations or the water cooler conversations that people might have had when they were in the office and that connection i think is they're they're leaning on that now and it's easy to continue to have conversations or continue to talk about things well past the time that a conversation or meeting is scheduled to end because you're craving that connection from outside of your home yeah we're we're kind of in a way been sort of making things up as we go along and um but just just for kind of context just describe um transwestern and and just describe your your role and and, and kind of where you focus so i joined transwestern about four weeks ago right in oh, the wow. middle of covid yes um and and my role there is to lead workplace strategy for the firm and that is primarily client facing. It's not as much internal facing. However, I am part of a number of groups and teams that are designing some of that for our firm, but primarily our firm is very entrepreneurial and we are regionally based. And so we have a number of kind of corporate protocols and then primarily it's it's up to the regional team to kind of figure out how they want their team to work so that they're so they can deliver the best work and produce the best results so we don't have a big broad internal um, real estate team like you see at some other clients uh, that have corporate real estate teams 
So primarily my job is to support our clients. So our landlords, our tenants, our occupiers, our uh, property management teams, all of those teams in how we think about strategically designing a workplace that is holistic, both in physical tools and virtual tools and considering experience, user experience, as well as how do you engage with other uh, cross-functional services teams for organizations and helping those clients think about it like that Um, and leveraging some tools that I have from previous um, experiences and talking them through what that looks like. So it's my, my role is primarily client facing. Um, And obviously right now in the middle of COVID, it's very heavily focused on what does it look like when we come back into the office? You know, we're, we're staying away from the word or the phrases of return to work because everyone is still working right now um, to some, you know, to varying degrees of, of success that they are either personally measuring or professionally measuring, but there will be a time in which, you know, offices and workplaces open back up. And what does that need to look like? And how do you start to plan for what that looks like over the next 12, 18, 36 months? Sure. And it'd be fascinating to, to get into that. But so just give me, um, so what's it like joining an organization in the middle of a global pandemic? Um, because the normal rules don't apply, um, yet you yet that's when you started. You're right. They don't apply. And it was... It was very strange in some aspects, and in other aspects, it was very comfortable. Um, the aspect that I was really comfortable with was actually working remotely. Uh, when I um, when I was working for Capital One, I had a fairly distributed team. I did a, a lot of remote working, and it was very comfortable and easy. So the fun- the aspect of actually not being in the office every day was not as challenging for me initially. Um, the aspect of not being connected to the culture was the part that was much more challenging for me um, and sort of getting to know everyone and learning the avenues within the organization and knowing who the, who the people were and what they did and how I could support them and how they could support me. So I would say the social and, co- and cultural constructs have actually been much more challenging than the actual, you know, constructs of getting work done or being functional with my you know, my laptop or my computer and and churning work out. That part has not really been too challenging because it feels very similar to what I've been used to. But the social and cultural constructs and the connection that happens from that, that, that makes the learning curve of getting up to speed at a new organization so much faster is not there. And I think that's been really the eye-opening component for me is when you start a new job or you start at a new organization, um, you know, a lot of times you don't know people. Sometimes you're lucky and you go to work for you know, friends or, or folks that you've had long-standing relationships with, but that doesn't always happen. And in this case, that was a similar opportunity. So we were, I was connected through um, a colleague and it really was a great opportunity. Um, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't know anybody at Transwestern when I came to work there. And so that social and, and cultural construct of learning those folks and, and getting your learning curve quickly um, was, it was huge for me. And it, it's still right. Normal. I'm four weeks. I'm working on week number five. And so there's a lot of that that's coalescing, you know, every day for me of, okay, these people do this and these people do this. And this is the right person to talk to about this, where those things happen naturally and, and quite a bit more organically. It's not as, it doesn't need to be as thoughtful necessarily if you are physically in the space with other, with those same people. 
Sure. So is it is it like in a way what you're saying is that you've been able to kind of get your work done and start working, but it's it's trying to soak in what's it like to work here? What's trans Western? What are trans Western people like? How do I kind of connect with people that that kind of social glue is the bit that you kind of not quite sure where to get hold of that from? Right. That's a good analogy. Yes. Yeah. Now, I mean, one of the reasons I say that is because, you know, we've got 100 people across Europe and North America. We haven't had offices for about seven years now. Um, and one of the things that new people say who come into the company is you can kind of get things here and there and you can sort of quite quickly get into the flow of things, but it's it's like trying to kind of get those um, kind of more kind of social, what the Swedes call fika, coffee and cake and chit chat. Um, one of the things that we've been doing um, in DWG is having uh, virtual team drinks every every week and more informal check-ins each week, and and just trying to kind of provide some more of that that kind of social glue and and it's a real challenge isn't it it's i mean we're huge advocates of the digital world of working but we also love the fact that you can it, you know we want to meet each other and organizations do need to meet each other and it's interesting kind of coming into an organization at that at that time without that kind of backdrop so i mean you mentioned the topic of um, it's not return to work because we're, we're already working, but work's going to start to, I don't know, let's call it normalize somewhat. And one of the things I've had organizations debating and asking is, so what's that physically going to look like? And and do you have a view um, from, a, from a sort of trans-Western perspective, what returning to the physicality of work is going to look like? I do. And it, again, I think it's, I like to think about the workplace as an ecosystem. So it's not just the physical, just the virtual, just the emotional, just the experience. It's, it's all of those things. And so my view and my recommendations to our clients really think about all of those facets of the workplace. And I think it's easy in the moment to make a knee-jerk reaction around, you know, oh, we need to space out all the desks or we need to, you know, close down all the community spaces or oh, we're going to, we're going to automatically, we've seen now that, you know, a good chunk of our workforce can work remotely. So we're not ever going to bring them back. And I think the conversations that have been evolving and that I've been having both on other panels and, and now here on this on your podcast and with our clients is it really needs to be a much more measured approach. And so I do think there will be physical changes to the workplace. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, there's a bit of a hypothesis of at least for the interim time being, you're going to return to more of an assigned desking kind of solution as opposed to as much hot desking and flexible desking that was being developed and incorporated into workplace designs, uh, which really supported collaboration, but also supported density. Um, and I think you're going to see the purpose of the workplace change. Like we're having this conversation right now and we're talking about how to be connected and how the social glue and, you know, even the, 
the things that happen when you schedule them, as you alluded to, whether they're social hours or things like that, there is a natural organic, and I will call it osmosis, that happens when you're in the workplace, right? You you absorb things about organizations, about people, about interactions, about information that sort of happen very subconsciously. Um, and when you are remote working, my my take on it is that's where I have been challenged the most in not being connected to the workplace is things that you learn almost almost unintentionally about organizations, about people um, are not there, right? So again, and so your conscious mind has to spend so much more time thinking about those things that just happen almost unconsciously when you have a workplace. Um, And so I think the, the purpose of work place is is going to change and it will be more focused around connection and more focused on collaboration and innovation. Um, I think, you know, and my opinion is that until there is some version of, you know, treatment or vaccine or something that allows people to feel safe, you're always also going to be trying to mitigate your workforce's psychological fears about coming back into a workplace. Um, I, you know, I live in Chicago and mass transit is a huge component of how, you know, probably 60 to 70% of our workforces get into the city, myself included. And so kind of thinking about my journey from the time I leave my house to actually get, getting in the office you know, that's, that's as much of the consideration as to going back into the workplace as well. And I think, you know, in every conversation that I'm having with clients, um, and even internally, for our own back to the office work plans for Transwestern, those are all the things that, that you're considering. And I, and I don't think there is one right answer. Uh, I think it is, you, you have to adopt a bit of a scientific approach to this around um, test and learning. So we're going to make a plan, and we're going to have some outcomes and we're going to do some physical things and we're going to enhance our virtual tools and we're going to figure out how to socially connect, you know, when we first open offices back up and there's probably going to be a period of time, you know, I think somewhere between 60 and 90 days where you'll see to your point, behaviors start to normalize. You'll see where people are getting comfortable. You'll see where things don't work and you're going to have to make a shift again. So I think that's where we're going to find ourselves very quickly in the U S yeah and and I I but do you think that the the reason why it's really hard to get this cultural social glue is 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 more a lack of familiarity and and a pattern of doing that in the digital world because you know it's only a few months ago people were large swathes of the workforce were really unused to remote working and certainly working from home and then it was forced on I mean, there was, you know, I think at one point, a third of the world's working population was in lockdown. Well, certainly, uh, you know, 2.3 billion people were in lockdown. And and consequently, there was this enforced remote and home working. And it was only when the people experienced it, they realized, actually, we can really work pretty well like this. And, And I wonder whether, you know, in the same way that, you know, we're so used to forming the social and community connection physically, we're not used to doing it in digital spaces. Do you think it's more a question of habit or is there something innate in human beings that, that needs that? I think it's both. I do think it's both because I think habit creates comfort. 
And so by doing something that you know how to do, it's right. You asked me, it's a little bit like starting a new job, right? This is new for me. I'm meeting new people. And so it's uncomfortable as you're getting your habits established. So I do think there's some component around habit. And I think what you'll see, particularly in the US, is really a push for flexibility. So the decision for people to choose to work remotely, to do certain things, or when they need to do certain things, I think is what you will see. Uh, but I also think on the same hand that there is something innate in humans in, in, in our species and how we engage and how we operate that is really based around social connection. And I think to assume that we could get to something where we don't have a lot of that, um, I don't think that that is really sustainable. I was reading an article over the weekend um, in the New York Times, and it really was talking about the what is happening in New York, where the it's a very social city, right? New York City is a very social city. It does, the real estate footprints for most people, particularly personally, is very small because they're primarily out in the city enjoying the the benefits of living in a place like that. And really, depression is is skyrocketing and suicide is, is rising and all of the things that you see when people are in isolation. And so I think it has to be a balanced approach. Again, I do believe that there is opportunity for us to better embrace a digital workplace and to enable choice and flexibility and so that people can get the work done that they need to get the work done in the places that they feel like they're most productive. I also think that we're, a social species and to assume that we could do it all remotely is, um, in my opinion, probably not the best recipe for um, driving innovation and driving really incredible um, ideas and, and generating those into some realized product. Yeah, and and as as you as you're saying, and it's like I like what you're saying about this period of experimentation, sixty to ninety days. It, it's there is no rule book for this. It's not like well, the last time we did this during the Spanish flu, this is what people did. I mean, I wrote a blog post which right. was uh, started off with well, at that time there was no such thing as remote working. There was no digital workplace. Uh, you know, so there is no precedent. So I, I like your idea of of flexibility, experimentation, um, and 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 sort of seeing where this goes. Because probably I probably one of the things I sort of in a way, criticize myself for is that I, I'm so uh, kind of attached because of what I do, that the digital workplace can provide all of these facilities. On the other hand, as a person, I really like meeting people. And I like meeting my colleagues. And, and I and, and I've not got anything fundamentally against the kind of physical spaces that people work in. I just think in the past, they've been sort of overused. Um, and, and I suppose there's a kind of rebalancing going on. But, but, but let me just sort of run past you a question that came to me from, um, I'll just say it was somebody who's uh, got quite a senior role in a financial services company with a huge headquarters in the centre of Manhattan. And they're asking themselves, so when we can go back into that building, what are we actually going to do? And where's, you know, we've got thousands of people who are supposed to be coming there from wide areas around New York into this space. And 
on the other hand, that's what we do. What's, I, I, you know, what's the, uh, what's the, uh, you know, what, what are your sort of reflections on that question? Is that, is that for tactically in the next 90 days when they open up or is that more long-term? Well, let's, let's do both because I'd be interested okay. in what you okay. think about both. Let's start with the first, you know, 30, 60, 90 days. Uh, so generally what we are advising our clients is that they always have to have a plan that sort of takes them from day one of when they bring their workforce or when they open the office back up for their workforce to re-engage all the way through to probably the next, you know, 18 months or so, because that's, that's the amount of shifting that's going to happen during that time is going to be astronomical. And it's not just about what's happening in the workplace, you know, and, and let's use, let's use Manhattan. It's going to be what's happening externally. Right. So, um, Again, we talked about the subway. Can people get into the office? Where are people located at? Who, what is, who are the most essential people that need to come in? Is your infrastructure ready to support you know, long-term work from home? Um, if you're a financial institution, you know, and depending on what kind of financial institution you are, you could have trading functions um, that work with Wall Street. And so can you deliver the value to your clients and your you know, your investors, particularly if you have trading functions, can, can you manage that? Can you do all of that from home? And, and you see it across a lot of financial institutions, the, the amount of resiliency and infrastructure that's necessary for them to, you know, engage with a lot of the trading functions is, is very, very high. Um, and that's hard. That is a hard function to do remotely. It just is. And so I think, you know, as they consider bringing their workforce or opening their offices back up to their workforce. These are all the factors that you have to consider. And one of the, and how we're, how we are advising our clients is a little bit the way that a lot of the government agencies in the U S did it was, you know, doing a bit of an assessment around who is essential and who's not essential. And it, it's not that anyone that works for an organization isn't essential. It's just who needs to be in the office and who doesn't need to be in the office to get their work done immediately. And so you kind of start with that perspective and it sort of helps you frame out who can still continue to work remotely, um, right? And, and those are people that ultimately might at some point later make a different choice about, I, I want to come in because I, I like the connective, the social connectivity. However, if they can still get their job done and be productive and feel good while they're re- working remotely, as an organization, you are mitigating risk for the, for the workforce that needs to be in the office for whatever reason, um, to be connected to things so that they're productive, right? So that's kind of the first step to think about. Um, I think the second step is really, once you identify that group of people, what are those protocols? And so we're also seeing and advising for, you know, staggered work, staggered work weeks. So we're advising our clients that really, their occupancy rates in their buildings shouldn't really be more than 70%. Um, really focusing more along the 50% line is probably better right now. Um, so staggered days, you know, staggered seating arrangements. A lot of our clients are not in a situation where they can, um, and, and we're advising them not to go out and make large capital investments that change their furniture or their, their physical footprint profile. And so thinking about how you can change operating models, which I think, Paul, leads into some of your questions around, Habitually, we have had operating models, particularly in the U.S., that have focused on coming into the office. Well, you're going to have we have to shift operating models now 
because we are concerned and we're addressing concerns from our workforce around health and safety. And so you will create new habits, new habits will come out of that. And so I think, you know, those first 90 days are going to be pretty critical for organizations to not only set out a plan, but figure out what is their measurements and testing along that plan so they can figure out at the end of that 90 days, okay, are we, is this still working? Is this still the right way to do it? And obviously there will be changes in you know, government, they'll be changing in testing, there'll be changes in, you know, treatment plans, potentially for if you get sick. Uh, But that's all going to continue to evolve. So that's really how we're advising our clients is have, you know, this sort of short term plan that focuses on addressing health and safety, and to some extent, um, self awareness that as organizations, we have a responsibility to our workforce to make the place safe for them and that they feel comfortable coming in and that we understand the different strains and constraints that they find themselves in in getting into the workforce, uh, into the office. So I think that's really what, in particular in Manhattan, there's so many, it's not even so much about getting into the office, it's all of the different touch points that their workforce is going to engage with along the way to get to the office. And then once you're in the office, then what do you do? Right? So there's a level of self-awareness that organizations, as they open their offices back up and they build plans to enable their workforce to come back to work, that they have to just really exercise a lot of empathy and a lot of flexibility in understanding that um, different people are going to be on different spectrums of that wanting to come back in or needing to come back in. Um, and you don't know what you have, what they have going on in their home life. You don't know, you know, where they get exposed to other things at and, and uh, enabling them to <clears throat> choose how that works for them is going to be really, really important. Obviously for folks that, that need to be there to be productive, that's a slightly different story, but even in those, you have to be, you have to have a way to, to think about, what happens if you have someone who is immunocompromised or you have someone who is taking care of an elder or something like that, right? There has to be a level of empathy as we open the offices back up and think through the processes and the protocols to bring them back. Um, And then you have the landlord side of it, right? And what they're doing to the building and how we're doing it. And that relationship between tenant and landlord is is very um, important right now, right? Because their tenants are going to have a perspective around this is what I need to do from everything I've read or my advisory committees or whatever to say this is what I need to do to make my workplace safe. And then you have a, a landlord who is also trying to balance that not just for you know maybe the financial client, maybe they're the only tenant that that landlord has, but there's many, many, many other landlords that have multiple tenants. And so they're trying to balance that for all of the tenants. Um, and the amenity space that has become the boom in the last, you know, couple years as part of a talent and, reta- and re- uh, retention, attraction and retention strategy for a lot of businesses, but also for landlords, right? Keep keeping good tenants. They've built a lot of amenity spaces, whether that's um, fitness centers or social community centers or you know, um, outdoor lounges or whatever that looks like. They've built all these community spaces as an attraction component for their for their tenants, and now they can't be used. And so there's so many factors that have to be considered as you build the plan um, that you really have to be considerate of it. You have to be intentional. You have to have self-awareness, and you have to have flexibility. 
And do you think that, you know, it, you know, if you had a, a kind of magic wand and you were taking a, a kind of multinational organization that has a large headquarters, large offices in urban conurbations, if you had a magic wand, would you design the physical workplaces like they are, i.e., would you create these high-density places or, just to kind of lead the question a bit, would you create lots of small physical working pods closer to where people live? So instead of people travelling large distances to physically be together all in one building, you actually, in a way, decentralise so people still get to be working with each other, but much closer to where people live. So you're still with colleagues, but just not as many of them. And that's my sort of slightly leading question. I think that has merit in a lot of organizations and a lot of places. I think the question that those organizations have to ask themselves is, you know, what is the best thing for them and what is the culture that they're trying to create and then preserve? So, and I think you have to take into, if it's multi multinational, you have to take into the culture, you have to take into account the culture of the geography in which you're putting that organization, um, you know, across the globe, different cultures, different nationalities operate in different ways. They hold different things more sacred than, you know, some cultures hold more things, some things more sacred than other cultures. Um, you know, a, a lot of times in APAC, we see that when, when, when we have a large, um, you know, Asian national, national group working at organizations in the U.S. who have embraced work from home, those cultures generally that's not something that they want to do. That's culturally how they function and how they deliver work and how they, how they deliver professional settings. And so I think part of the conversation has to be what is right for your business. I, and Paul, I'm not saying that to say, to not answer your question. I just think the answer is it depends. I think that is a, that's a great solution for a lot of organizations. And I think in some shape or form, almost all organizations can leverage that, right? It's just what degree of that works for your organization and the culture that you're trying to create and the geography. I think that the geography and the culture of the geography that you are standing shop up in makes a really, really big difference. And so maybe in APAC, you know, it's, you don't have as much distributed. You still have some level of distribution, but maybe it's not as distributed. Maybe in, you know, EMEA, it is more distributed. And then in the U.S., it's you know potentially a mix of both. Um, I just I think I do think that that I think it's, uh, making making a prediction that we're going to decentralize I think is probably in my opinion probably not necessarily the right thing. And we've seen it a little bit in the U.S. You know when we've had other crises, not a pandemic, but you know obviously nine eleven. Uh, we've had you know the financial decline in 2008. I mean, we've had similar kinds of things where the question around real estate footprint particularly um, became very, you know, uh, became a very big conversation point. Um, and then, you know, obviously with 9-11, it was really around, you know, safety and were, were people ever going to come back into the office? Do people ever feel safe enough to come back into the office? And here we are, you know, 20 years later having a very similar conversation. Um, and so I think, 
there's this, some of the factors that we've talked about today, you know, habit, things that make you feel comfortable, the way that we as a, as a species are very social, um, are all considerations that you have to think about as you design what that portfolio looks like. And, and if you, if, you know, one of the biggest lessons I think we've learned is culturally, you can't force, you can't force something in a culture that is not ready to accept that. Um, or that's not the way in which they have their own traditions and values and beliefs. You have to work with that. And so, but, is, so but hasn't, that, hasn't the, hasn't the kind of what we've seen with, with this sort of enforced remote working suggested that's actually not true, that, that actually you can in a way force cultural change. Cause I, I don't think I've spoken to anybody who, who has not said to me some version of, I'm going to work more, I'm going to work remotely more and I'm going to go into essentially whatever office we used to go into less. And the question is how much? And one of the things I was going to say was that actually human beings are unbelievably adaptable and we've seen this. And I wonder whether in a way to support your argument, if you like, um, people will probably come back to being comfortable going back into the physical offices and physical spaces they've shared maybe a little bit more readily than we think once they start to feel safe i think that's the key thing isn't it you can't have the journey to work being this sort of trip through a kind of war zone as you hope you'll come back home while being as well as you were when you left at the in the beginning of the day because i mean if work wasn't stressful enough in lots of ways already pre-covid that would just uh put it through the roof. I agree. I think safe is the, is the key factor. And it's probably, I think that's the key factor globally. I don't think that that has any national divisions or cultural divisions. Everyone wants to feel safe. And so I think that is the key factor, you know, globally. And I agree with you. Humans are a remarkably adaptable uh, species. And I think, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, and I do think, you know, your point about it being a forced experiment, I think that is, you know, and that's kind of what we've been talking about across, you know, the globe and, and, and you know, even even competitors of Transwestern as we've as we've all kind of put together our collective heads and thought about things and, and looked at insights and, and seen, you know, places that are leading right now, like in um, Asia, where they're, you know, they're getting back to work and they're thinking about what that looks like. Um, so we do know that, you know, and, and, and the more you learn and the, you know, it's a, again, the more it happens, uh, more something happens, you get more comfortable in sort of getting yourself back to what you now call your new normal or whatever we're calling that now. So I do think it's, I, I think to, back to your comment around, you know, people going, working, leveraging remote working more and going into the office less. I a hundred percent agree with you. It's going to be the, what that, percentage looks like. And that, that kind of goes back to my comment around flexibility. So, and choice, right? Where do you need to be to be your most productive? And a huge component of being productive is your, uh, you know, your social, your social state and your psychological state. Um, you know, I, I, I'm working from home. I have two boys that are here with me and my husband and I were just chatting about this this morning around, like, why is this so hard? Why does this feel so much harder than when I was doing remote working before? And part of it is because you have all of these other stressors 
um, while I am quote unquote working, it's the kids. right. That I didn't have to worry about before. Right. I'm, I'm trying to work from home. I saw a great thing and it's, it's floated around a couple of times. I'm, I'm trying to work from home during a crisis. Like this isn't my normal work from home environment. So I do think you're going to, you're going to see a lot of people that are like, great, let me figure out how to get back into the office. Okay. Now I need to normalize this because I still need to manage my day-to-day life. But there's so much about the environment that we're in right now. And, and again, we talk about this as a forced experiment. There's no control factors. So we don't have anything to, to, you know, to measure this against because we don't have control factors like you do in a regular experiment. So I think that whole point around looking at it as an opportunity to see what is working, what's not working, tweak it and keep moving forward is going to be really important for all of us, both pers- both individually and at or- at organizational levels. Yeah. And, and I suppose, you know, just taking the this idea that there will be some level of more remote working and, and some and therefore, uh, and I think you've said lesser levels of uh, occupancy in the real estate. At, at what point are the financial people then going to say so? We're, play, we're paying the same, the building's costing us the same amount, but the occupancy level's down at 50%. Shouldn't we be now starting to keep, yeah, we still we still need space, but surely we need less space. Or does that then, but on the other hand, you're then up to 100% occupancy of smaller space. Um, I'm just trying to wonder about the kind of financial optics of that um, ratio. And I think everyone is wrestling a little bit with that. I mean, most, most, and, and sort of those are the two kinds of posts that I've seen recently is a lot of CFOs are are looking at that, you know, uh, with substantially all of their workforce right now remotely working uh, and the potential that, you know, only potentially 50 to 60 percent would come back into the office. You know, now they've already begun to ask those questions of can we reduce our footprint? Can we do this? Can we do that? And then you have, you know, the sort of the running conversation that has started up and that will continue around what is the purpose of work. And so if you start to think about what is the purpose of the workplace, right, is it necessarily the place that you come to do work or is it the place that you come to connect and collaborate and innovate? Now you have a very different purpose for a workplace and the physical space that is necessary to do that. And so I think it, it is, it is going to be, it's the optics of it. You know, I think initially the optics of it will be um, less scrutinized because it is a bit of, Hey, who do we need to have come back in? What, what, what's going on? How is this working? You know, how do people feel safe? What are those things. So I think you're going to have initially people exploring it and looking at that, but the optics of it, to your point, I, at least domestically, I don't think will be as, um, I won't have as many eyes on it as it will 90 days, you know, post things opening. And then I think the challenge also will be is it's going to be a rolling quote unquote opening in the States, right? Um, uh, Atlanta and Texas are doing a soft open today. Um, we're at the state that I live in Illinois, we're extended in our shelter and home until the end of May. So is Wisconsin, you know, Michigan. So th- that's the other challenge, at least, you know, domestically, um, for companies that have a huge domestic presence here is when does that time actually start ticking, right? Because you, you have so many varying parts and pieces. Again, back to our, our experiment analogy, there's no control. And so they're working through a lot of 
scenarios and things to consider um, that I don't know is happening globally because of the way the United States is designed and built and our and our government and our um, our systems are. I suppose you could say, you know, I mean, I'm in Europe and, and each country's got its own uh, version of 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 the way that it's approached things, the way that it's relaxing, not relaxing. You've then got, as you said, you've got uh, the timeline of of the Far East being further ahead, um, and also different cultures that are more maybe accepting of 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 particular level as a kind of restriction. Um, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I am wondering what the what the sort of overall opportunity in all of this is and there does seem to be some i do wonder whether if there is going to be some level of reduction of real estate whether the if you like the liberated space could still owned by those companies be used for different functions so um for instance you know what about if younger people working for that organization also were able to live there so, you know, there's a kind of live workspace. Could you, in a, in a sort of social enterprise way, create some space that would allow businesses that have suffered or sectors that have suffered economically to, in a way, have some, um, you know, subsidized accommodation? You know, actually, there could be because I've noticed that large organizations and organizations of any type have had real social conscience during this and have been doing remarkable things. And I wonder where that, if you like, social do-good energy is going to go. I think they'll want it to go somewhere. And, and maybe some of the, if you like, release real estate could provide opportunities for the parts of the economy and the parts of you know, society who've suffered the most through this. Um, do any of those ideas seem kind of feasible, Sam? I think they do. And I think that... I think you will find organizations looking for ways to leverage that differently. And, and you see it a little bit uh, already with, you know, when they, the rise of what, what, what were called th third spaces, right? And sort of Starbucks started that un un potentially unintentionally, but probably not. Lots of very smart people work there. Um, but you kind of saw that with Convene and WeWork, um, you know, even as early as Liquid Space was one of the first um providers that did that. Um, so I think you do see that you, you've already seen an acceptance of taking um, unused real estate and leveraging it for a better purpose, whether whatever that purpose happens to be, right? And that's really where that's really how convene started was in New York. And they had, you know, all these um, meeting spaces or, you know, within a, a, a real estate portfolio, they couldn't find meeting space for it. And so they had all these, you know, other spaces within the city. And sometimes they were just small little pockets of space. Sometimes they were bigger, um, but they repurposed them for something. Um, Liquid Space was also doing that where they would go to particularly hotels and, and we're seeing that now. So I don't know what that's happened, whether that's happening in Europe, but definitely in the States, um, in cities where we have you know, a high concentration of, of COVID cases and the first responders who, you know, I'm sure we can all agree are incredible right now. And they're such heroes are staying in hotels. So I know in New York and I know here in Chicago, you know, hotels are offering that space for those folks. One, and, and, and it's, it's obviously there's a business proposition for them, but it's also a bit altruistic because those 
frontline workers are in the midst of that pandemic and potentially being exposed to potential infection every single day. So now they have a, a respite where they can go and, you know, stay in a place that is not contaminated and they're not contaminating their loved ones. Uh, so I think you're going to continue to see that, um, that progression, what that looks like. I don't know, but I think it definitely has its, its roots are already here. It's what, how does that grow? Because you are already seeing that happening as kind of a, a shift in industry. And I think that, you know, real estate, the real estate industry um, has been in the last couple of years, and, you know, this probably speaks to you also, Paul, is it's been a bit on a precipice of a kind of a monumental change with all of the, the prop tech that's been coming up and the third spaces and sort of shifting what was traditional real estate to your point of, I have an office, um, I come to my office every day, I do this every day, right? It's, it's, it's been shifting for the past, you know, three or four years. It's a bit in a pause right now because a lot of those organizations um, partly because of how they were funded and partly because of the spaces that they were using were effectively community spaces, which are not enabled right now. You know, they're questioning what they're doing with it, but I, the roots of that have already been laid and people, and, and I like to call it the experience economy. And it happens both, you know, inside of an organization as well as outside of an organization, that experience economy isn't going to go away to your point. When people feel safe again, the experience economy will come back. And maybe not to the same degree it was, but it will come back. And so, you know, how can you create better experiences with real estate? And some of that is going to manifest itself in um, <clears throat> not just for your associates or, you know, for a business venture, but also um, for, you know, charitable operations. And how do you create, you know, vertical villages or social constructs that, you know, support work play life yeah and wouldn't i would, i mean and that would be really exhilarating it feels like one of the things that this crisis has revealed is 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 that there's a certain sort of physical configuration to and not just offices but the way that cities are, are sort of constructed and and it's still in large part a product of the industrial age and and actually in this digital or what I'm kind of thinking of as a sort of living age, what you might call the experience age, that, that actually this recalibration is, is there. And, and we're in, I think we've both said we're involved in this collective experiment without any control, you know, like a control study. You know, there's no placebo. It's like this. Everybody's been given the real, you know, um, medicine. Um, anyway, um, I could go on talking to you for ages, Sam, but I'm going to end with the question I always end with. Um, which is what's a perfect working day for you? And it doesn't have to be one that you're having at the moment, um, just a, a perfect working day. And the questions become slightly different in the current um, episodes that I've been recording during this, during the virus period. That's a great question, Paul. And I think, you're, you know, you probably are seeing sort of that spectrum of what does that look like for people? And I'm sure it is shifting quite dramatically with it. Um, for me, <clears throat> a perfect working day for me is probably less about place and more about value. And that's pretty much the way most perfect working days have, have, I've sort of perceived them. And, and when I feel at the end of the day that I've had a perfect working day, it's the way in which I feel like I've added the most value. Um, and for me, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I 
either been physically in a workplace or not. Um, you know, there's a ton of stressors that we all have. So for me, that that's really, and, and it's hard for me to quantify that. And I know that that's not necessarily easy for people to kind of as, absorb what that means. But for me, it's really, you know, have I helped somebody? Have I encouraged someone? Have I delivered a differentiated or unique perspective that now causes someone to think about something differently than maybe they had before. Um, so for me, that's what a perfect working day is. It's really about, did I deliver? How did I take my experience, my knowledge, or even just my, the way I think about things? Um, Cause we all think about things in different ways and contribute in a valuable way that grows or helps or encourages someone else to even if they don't take what I've said, think about something in a different way. That's that's great. Um, Sam, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad that we connected. We had a conversation different to the one that I was expecting to have um, because I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, in a way get into this subject that I think is clearly fascinating to you and is certainly fascinating to me. And uh, I think hopefully we'll be useful to people who are listening to this as they're trying to navigate you know the questions that come out of our you know the experiment without a control study so thanks so much for your time today sam thanks for having me paul this was great maybe maybe in uh 90 days or 120 days we come back and see if our predictions are uh right Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.